you would and uh, turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 20. Today we'll pick back up in verse 17. Imagine we all have memories of goodbye moments that were powerful or meaningful to you. I can remember when Molly and I moved from Corinth to Madison. I had a next door neighbor named Tony, and uh, we got really close in three years. And uh, he gave me a big hug, and he was crying all over me. It was gross, just getting his tears on my shirt. And then he couldn't stand to be at home when we were leaving. And so he had a friend, Bubba McQueen, who was going to Memphis. And so he just rode with Bubba just to ride with him so that he wouldn't be in town when the U-Haul finally started rolling I also remember moving from Madison back to Corinth. We had some friends come by and also some students from the youth group, and they helped us load the U-Haul. One of them, just a sweet, sweet girl named Emma, brought a scrapbook she'd made. She'd been a part of the youth group for about four years, and she had pictures from various trips and she put it together and and gave it to me and uh, it was an incredibly thoughtful gift uh, you, you, if, if you take this further where you aren't simply talking about moving but apply this to death I mean what makes the death of a loved one so grievous Right? Isn't it their absence? They aren't there anymore. They don't call anymore. Thanksgiving and Christmas and birthdays and anniversaries, they're gone. I think the separation is probably what we mourn the most. This person we love has departed and we don't see them again in this life. Goodbyes can be powerful moments. And there's a great one at the very end of The Lord of the Rings. It's on one of the final pages. One of the main characters says, Well, here at last, dear friends, on the shores of the sea comes the end of our fellowship in Middle Earth. Go in peace. I will not say, do not weep, for not all tears are an evil. We see something very similar in today's text. It's one of the greatest farewells in Scripture. And it's Paul's farewell address to the elders of the church in Ephesus. Paul's third missionary journey has come to an end. It's time for him to go back to Jerusalem. He'd spent 
three decades in the mission field, and he'd spent three years specifically in Ephesus, discipling these men, training them up as those who would be there to lead the church in his absence. And now he's going to a place where he will very likely be arrested or even killed for the sake of the gospel. And we'll see him tell them he's confident that on this side of glory, these men will never see him again. He was traveling on a merchant ship. It was going from port to port along the coast, slowly making its way towards Jerusalem. And we're told in verse 16 that Paul decided to sail past Ephesus, and we're told the reason, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem. Again, I'll I'll remind you that Asia here is not the Asia that you and I normally think of. This is a region on the far west side of what is modern-day Turkey. And Luke tells us he's in a hurry. He's got to get back to Jerusalem by Pentecost. He wants to be with the church on that special day. And he knows that if he stops in Ephesus, he'll be delayed. You know this. You're on a trip. You're driving through a city and you're reminded, Oh, I have a dear friend who lives here. I'd love to call him. I'd love to see him. But... If I call them and let them know I'm coming through, they're going to demand I stay for dinner, maybe that I spend the night. At the the least, I'm going to be delayed at least two hours. And so you don't call, and you just keep on driving. That's what Paul is doing here. But then the ship stops. He he has a several-day layover in a little port town called Miletus. Miletus was close to Ephesus. And Paul is going to be given an opportunity to have a final farewell with these men who are leading the church in Ephesus, and he jumps at it. We see in verse 17 that a message is sent to them. They quickly respond They arrive in Miletus. And and what follows for the remainder of this chapter is something that is really unique in the book of Acts. Not only is this a farewell address, but this is the only example in Acts where Luke records an extended speech to Christians. Now we've seen lengthy addresses to Jews. Remember Stephen in chapter 7 before he's martyred. We've seen lengthy addresses to pagan philosophers like those in Athens. But this is the first time in Acts when we've seen a lengthy address to the church. Now, Paul has obviously spoken to the church at length already. I mean, earlier in this chapter, he speaks for such a long time, this poor boy falls asleep and falls out the window. But here is the first instance where we're told what Paul said. Luke tells us the message that was delivered to these elders. And it really 
The second half of this chapter really makes you think of Paul's letters. It sounds very similar, which, which makes sense. So here's my plan. I'm not sure how long it will take. It will be four or five sermons to get to the end of this chapter. Um, today, well, I had hopes on Tuesday of making it to verse 27. We're going to make it to verse 21. There's just too much here. In reading the final words that Paul spoke to these men, we, we have to slow down and consider them. There are going to be times later in the book when we're able to cover more ground, but it is not here. And so I don't have any, uh, I, I don't have three alliterative points. My plan is just to slowly walk through the words of this address. And today has us ending with verse 21. But for the sake of context, I'm going to read verses 17 through 38. Let's pray and then, and then I'll read that text. Uh, Father God, would you speak to your people? Uh, Paul uh, spoke to these elders that they might be encouraged, that they might have an example, and that they might be strengthened and prepared for what was ahead of them. Father, would you do the same for us? Not, not all of us in this room are elders. Not all of us in this room are church officers. And yet all of us can be encouraged. All of us can follow this example. All of us need to be prepared for what is coming. And so would we learn from your word, as did uh, these Ephesian men, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 20, starting in verse 17. Now for Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold... I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he'd said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face Again, and they accompanied him to the ship. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. A helpful helpful place to start might be just simply to ask, who are these men, uh, these elders? Well, these are those men that Paul had trained up and installed to lead the local church. Paul would travel to a new town. He would share the gospel. That message would take root in people's hearts. They would be changed. Paul would identify leaders, train them up, install them into office. And then he was able to move on to a new town. And they became self-sufficient. Not in the fact that they didn't need the Lord, but in the fact that They didn't need Paul anymore. And notice that Paul isn't forming just one massive megachurch that just balloons and becomes more and more bloated. Churches can fall into this for various reasons. And, you know, someone could just point and say, easy for the the small church pastor to say, <laughs> maybe it is easier for me. You know, a church will grow and so they need space. Uh, so they build and those buildings cost money. And so they can't plant. They can't let families go because they need them financially. So they continue to grow, which makes them have another need to build. And the cycle just continues. Well, Paul doesn't do that. He's traveling from one place to another. He establishes and gathers a core group, trains leaders, walks with them until they're able to stand on their own two feet, and then he moves on, trusting them to the Lord. Now, he does write them. He encourages them. He corrects them. We see that that in his letters. But he's entrusting the future of the church at Ephesus to these elders. He is willing to walk away from this major church in this major city 
A church that was so influential that other residents in the city who made their living through sinful means start to go broke and they riot because people are not buying their idols anymore. That's how influential the church in Ephesus was. And Paul is leaving it to these men. And he's going to a place where he is sure he will be persecuted, arrested, and likely killed. Why does he wish to speak to them? He wants to encourage them to watch over the church. He warns them of coming heresies. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. And he reminds them of his own example. There may be weeks when you feel like the sermon steps on your toes. A majority of you will probably have a break for the next three to five weeks. But I certainly will not have a break. And our elders certainly will not have a break. This passage, this address that Paul is giving, communicates the role of the elder. And speaking for myself, it is a role in which I, as a teaching elder, often fall short. But God is gracious, and He's given us His Word. He's given us passages like this that are meant to encourage those who have been appointed to lead the church. And Paul is saying, imitate me. As you fulfill the calling that the Lord has given you, imitate me. So let's get into it. The elders arrive in Miletus. They gather together, sit down, and Paul begins. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Remember the example I have set throughout those three years. You know how I lived. Paul isn't looking for praise. He's not being boastful. He's he's using his life to reinforce his teaching. This is something we all get. The person who is doing the speaking is going to impact how we react to it. You know, there's a saying that there there are certain guys will use the saying. I would I would go to war with that man. I'd share a foxhole with that man. I'd follow him to the gates of hell. Why? Because you know who he is. Right? Paul Paul is saying, you've spent time with me. You know me. I've, I've invested in you. I've demonstrated I care for you. I've set you an example, so follow me. There's an older pastor who mentored me for several years, and we worked closely together. And I saw him day in and day out. I saw him interact with his wife and children and grandchildren. And if he said, John, I'd really like for you to give some consideration to X. 
I would be all ears. Because I know and respect this godly man. Paul is beginning in a similar way. You know how I lived among you. You know that I love you. You know that I want your best, so listen. He continues in verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now we'll get to more of this next week, but notice who Paul says he's not serving. He's not serving himself. It's not about him. It's not about building his platform and building his brand. He is there serving the Lord. I heard someone say recently, uh, this was a conversation among a teaching elder and ruling elder in our denomination. And uh, the ruling elder said, may the tribe of those who are not trying to build a platform increase. Yes. That's what the church needs more of. Pastors who are not self-promoting and putting themselves forward and trying to gain a following and trying to build a platform and a brand. The ruling elder was the one that made that statement, but then the the, the teaching elder responded and said, self-promotion is the death of usefulness in ministry. And I think that's right in line with Paul's words. I served the Lord with all humility. Paul had not forgotten who he was prior to his conversion. Paul hadn't forgotten the things that he did before he was Paul the Apostle, before he was Paul the missionary. And he was also, he remained, very aware of the indwelling sin that continued to plague him. You'll remember that writing to Timothy near the very end of his life, he refers to himself as the foremost of sinners. He's not being melodramatic. He's expressing that he needs the grace of God just as much as the people he's ministering to do. He served the Lord with all humility and also served them with tears. Thomas Cranmer was one of the leaders of the English Reformation. And he was killed by Mary I in 1556. And he put this very simply. He said, none of us goes to heaven on a feathered bed. Paul knew that. Tears were wrung out of him by hardship and by attacks of Satan, by hatred of unbelieving men, and by issues inside the church. He'll say something similar in 2 Corinthians 2. It's a different church, but still same Sentiment. He said, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. 
we see here that Paul is not just a scholar who rolls into town and instructs them in robust theology. His heart was with the people. He wept with them and prayed with them, and he rejoiced when they rejoiced, and he mourned when they mourned. He endured all kinds of attacks and suffering from people who hated the church. And then he tells us why. Why were the Jews plotting against him? Well, verse 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. What would be more profitable than saying, you are at odds with God. By nature, you are corrupt. By nature, you are spiritually polluted. But God has provided a means by which you might be washed and made clean. And it is found in his son, Jesus Christ. But his teaching didn't end there. In a couple of weeks, we'll see in verse 27, he'll say, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. His words to them are not simply evangelistic, but also profitable to the church. Words that might build them up and strengthen them and grow them in maturity. And he did this publicly. And he also went house to house. Here's an, another rebuke for pastors. And, and this is a rebuke to those who only minister while they're in the pulpit or in the church building. Maybe you've known a pastor like this before. This mistake is to fall into a pattern where you only minister corporately and not individually. Right? You minister to the body of believers, not individual believers. You speak to the church from the pulpit or while you're on the church property, but then you have nothing to say once you leave the building. Paul wasn't that way. He didn't only preach in the assembly. He also ministered to individuals. I'm going to quote Calvin several times here at the end. He just had so many great comments. And here he said that teaching that is given to everyone will often grow cold unless it is helped by advice given in private. Does that make sense? The only ministering I'm doing is happening right now What and what's going on and nothing else is happening during the week. No other conversations are going on then this is going to grow quite cold and dull. Paul went house to house. He loved these people. He developed friendships with them. He was in their homes, sitting at their tables, sharing meals with them. He talked with them. He knew their children. He, he strove to strengthen those who were discouraged and weak and support those who were frail. He did so on an individual basis. 
And then we come to our final verse of the week, verse 21. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those two critical doctrines of the Christian faith could have their own sermon. (laughs) Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. They could each have their own week. Apparently, these were doctrines that Paul majored on. They're doctrines he mentions here, and so we should probably take note of that. Are you familiar with uh, easy believism? Maybe it's not a term you recognize, but you'll recognize it in practice. Easy believism says, if I'm saved by grace, if all my sins are covered, past, present, and future, then it doesn't matter how I live. God will just forgive me anyway. Right? This is easy believism. The, The temptation is right before you and you think, hey, doesn't matter. I can give in. I don't have to worry about this sin because I can always just come back and ask the Lord for forgiveness. It's a gross misunderstanding of the grace of God. It's a minimization of the sinfulness of sin. And it's a horrendous degradation, or I'm sorry, denigration of the life and suffering of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. And Paul didn't preach easy believism. He called people to repent of their sins and to have faith in Christ. So what is repentance? Repentance is a turning. It's a turning from sin and to God. It's not only turning away from something, but it's turning to something else. A turning away from sin and a turning to God. Our our confession says this of repentance. By it, by repentance, a sinner, seeing and sensing not only the danger, but also the filthiness and hatefulness of his sins, because they are contrary to God's holy nature and his righteous law turns from all his sins to God in the realization that God promises mercy in Christ to those who repent and so grieves for and hates his sins that he determines and endeavors to walk with God in all the ways that he commands. There's a lot there. I'll try to make it simple. Repentance begins with Seeing and sensing danger. If you think of Pilgrim or Christian at the very beginning of Pilgrim's Progress, he has this burden on his back that he feels and he fears. There's a fear to leave the city of destruction. Right? That that is the beginnings of repentance, sensing danger. Also, Realizing the filthiness and developing a hatred towards our sin. Now, if you've felt that before, then praise God. 
Because that's the first part of repentance. You know, this is the difference between, let, let's say you have a disease and you don't know it and you aren't seeking a cure. Versus someone who has a disease and is diagnosed and then moves towards life-saving treatment. Feeling the danger and filthiness of our sin is a grace from God. But not only do we turn away from our sin, we also turn towards God. The confession says that we realize that God has promised mercy in Christ to all who repent. This is what Paul is preaching. He's preaching it to the Jews and to the Greeks. Everyone, regardless of your background, everyone must turn from their old ways and turn to Christ. I mean, this is why Christianity is able to take root in every society, in every country, on every continent. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you're coming from, everyone must turn from their old ways and turn to Christ. There is no easy believism here. The whole of the Christian's life is to be dedicated to the Lord, and we are to pursue obedience to Him. Our obedience, I'm sorry, our our repentance is not paying off our sin debt. It's not earning favor in God's eyes. But it is impossible for us to be pardoned without it. Calvin again says that the purpose of all religion is that we should serve the Lord purely, embracing holiness and righteousness and seeking no part of salvation anywhere but from Christ. You know, the first half of that statement was on repentance. Serve the Lord purely, embracing holiness and righteousness. And then the second half is on saving faith. What is faith? Seeking no part of salvation anywhere but from Christ. Faith is simply believing that my standing before God, my eternal life, my everything is based on who Jesus is and what He has done. It's looking to Him to pay the debt. It's, it's the line from Rock of Ages, the third stanza. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. That saving faith. And where you have faith, you'll have repentance. And where you have repentance, you'll have faith. I would never believe on Christ unless I was first dissatisfied with myself and felt the danger of my sin. And I'd never be able to turn to God and walk in obedience unless a miracle had been worked in my heart 
and my eyes had been opened to see that God is in the business of taking slaves of Satan and adopting them and making them his own children. Those are the two things that Paul says he majored on in his time with them. He did not shrink back from these truths. And that's where we'll leave off today and plan to pick back up next Lord's Day in verse 22. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help the leadership of this local church. Would you help me? Would you help our elders as we shepherd the flock that you have put under our care? Would we follow the example, not only of Christ, but also of the Apostle Paul? Would we be those who love and serve your people because it's what you've called us to and charged us to do? And Father, would you bless these, your people? Would you keep them close to you? Would you remind them of their sin and also remind them of the uh, grace and freedom and forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus? Father, would you do a mighty work among us that you might look glorious and that the light of your gospel might go forth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.